I'm a pretty good cook. I'm not, I'm not exceptional. And I, and I actually don't want to be. I, I can be like really good at stuff that's really accessible. And that's the world I'm happy to do. I don't want a Michelin star, but dude, if I wanted one, I'd get one in a year. It's like, it ain't hard. You just gotta play the game, buy some nice crockery, be a little bit pretentious. I could do it in a second. Listening to the Taste Podcast, I'm editor in chief Matt Rodbard here with senior editor Anna Hazel. Today on the show, Matt is catching up with Jamie Oliver, a British food media icon who is behind one of the most groundbreaking food TV programs of all time. Fully agree. The Naked Chef was a legendary program that aired on BBC Two in the UK and later on the Food Network here in the States. When it originally aired in 1999, the idea of a guy cooking for fun or leisure was actually pretty foreign, at least in the mainstream. The Naked Chef made such a huge splash when it came out. What do you think made the show so special? You know, it was a combination of factors. You know, they shot it in this really rough and shaky way, which at the time was really foreign for cooking programs. Um, It was really, like, at that time, a stand-and-stir affair, standing behind the desk or the table and talk through the dish. But these recipes also were cooked in a super simple way, usually less than five ingredients. Um, And he made cooking accessible and democratic. I like that about Jamie Oliver is he made things feel like it was authentic and you could do it at home. And I felt for guys in particular, there was not that kind of language spoken to us at the time in 1999. I know it sounds silly now with food being really part of all culture, but at the time it just really wasn't being presented from that point of view. Here's Matt with Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I love having you in here. I've uh, I've grown up with you, I feel, watching your shows. We'll get into that. But first, I want to um, find out about your trip to the States. Yeah. How has that been? And, and have you had any any cool food discoveries? You were in L.A. a few days ago. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, first up, it's, it's great to be back. I haven't traveled for yeah. maybe two and a quarter years. Um, I did a load of traveling and sort of quietened it down, and then COVID happened. So, yeah, it's great to be out. Um, there's a world out there. It's amazing. Uh, it doesn't feel too bad, actually. I mean, it's not super uptight, anything like it. It just feels like, you know, it's, it's, it's business as normal. So that was nice. Went into L.A. first. Yeah, and of course, you know, from I get up jet lag, and I'm up and I'm down the farmers markets. Yeah, four a.m. Checking Boom. out all the citrus. Bought a whole load of citrus for no reason. Uh, <laughs> a whole load of different, uh, you know, tomatoes and herbs and chilies and avocados and just, you know, it sounds like a salad to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could have been anything and salsa. Who knows? But yeah, um, yeah great to be back. And I lived here for a little bit when I was doing food revolution. Right. Um, right. So actually, some of the purveyors down the market I knew. Uh-huh. Um, so just nice. It's always, I think, yeah, nice. Oh, my markets are always good. No, so it, they bring life to you, especially when you got that like jet lag and you're like twelve hours away from your home. Tell me, uh, was there um, any tacos in your plan? Did you have a taco? Yeah, I had a shrimp taco with oh, some yeah. kind of like multi-dried and fresh chili, pounded up, smelly, smoky, yeah. gorgeous, tangy thing. Oh, um, it was almost like tamarind, but it wasn't tamarind. It was just delicious. Um, uh, so, yeah, and oh. I, I kind of think, like, you know, I think for non-Mexican cooking, like, uh, I've, we kind of dress it up quite a lot. 
but it was really simple. I like it yeah. when it's like really simple, but like bold flavors. I love that this. you you've drawn you're drawn to this the simplicity and the boldness of Mexican cooking. I think I fully agree. Like three well things, said. you know, yeah. shrimp, salsa, and some squashed avo, and it was kind of like, okay, uh, they could have like flounced it up more, but it didn't need it. I want to talk about the simplicity of your cooking, Naked Chef. I think brought simplicity to the forefront. I want to talk about the show. Let's just go there. For me, the show means a lot. You brought in a single-camera documentary-style TV show when everyone was doing Stand and Stir. To me, as a, as a, as a viewer, I was inspired by you for democratizing cooking. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Mean it. How do you reflect on that time when you were doing these shows that really brought up the sound? You're hearing the smashing of shallot. You're hearing the smashing of garlic. You're talking about using four or five ingredients. I was kind of caught between two things, really. I was very young, very naive, knew nothing about production. But I knew I wanted to represent myself. And, and myself was like I was just a kid. It was just like to wear what I wanted. And, you know, if you're going to make a TV show about me, cut it to the music I'm listening to. Don't cut it to your music or right. BBC music. Like, cut it to my music. Shoot <laughs> it in my home. And I'm going to go shopping, buy some stuff, do some stuff to it and serve it. I mean, it was as yeah. simple as that. But by default, it was really, really uh, new and fresh. So new. And a lot of the studio shows were highly lit. They wore chef jackets. They were much, <laughs> much more older, a Michelin yeah. star chefy type thing. Felt yeah. a bit more real. Um, and um, like even little things like, you know, getting on my scooter and going down the market, like the, the cameras that were prolific at the time were digi beaters, massive, uh-huh. huge things. So Before, you, 300 pounds. You could yeah. never do that. Yeah. So actually, we went back 30, 40 years and got an old Super 8 Cine, cine film. And, That's um, why the green, you so, see the green in it, yeah. Because we didn't have phone cameras, we didn't have no. any of the small cameras. Mm. So that would do those little transitional shots. So it kind of, it was at the time of Britpop, you know, kind of like Oasis, Blur, kind of the music, the fashion, Kate Moss. It, you know, um, it, it, art scene was kicking off. So I was really lucky. Um, and I think it was a kind of energy from young people. I love it. Speaking of Oasis Blur, I was going to ask you, do you know Alex James from Blur, the cheese Very maker? well, yeah. So let's, well. So, so let's go there. Are you Blur or Oasis Hive? Oh, man. Well, I, I can't. It's a bit like saying <laughs> stuffing in or out. You know, I, 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 I don't want to choose. I can have both. Um, I, I, I actually think they were both better because of each other. Agreed. And I think like many things in life, the tension um, it kind of creates a vibe. And I mean, I actually, I love the simplicity of, Oasis and and I think actually the probably the Blur songs were more kind of layered and interesting. Yeah, but they had a vibe and you know Damon Albarn still knocking out some pretty cool stuff. He's a, he's a genius. Um, but as is Liam actually. And Liam, Liam uh, I'll I'll reserve my judgment. But let's talk about Alex James. He's a cheesemaker up in the Cotswolds. Yeah, he's, he's got a cool place. Do you hang with him at all? I do hang with him. I haven't seen him for about a year, but we did a festival together oh, called cool. the Festival, and we became really good buddies. And look, I love him to bits and. Um, and look, he, he makes some amazing cheese and his yeah. farm, we, we get like 22,000 people there raving, eating, drinking, like, but good food. Yeah. And it's a family festival. We get yeah. killer bands there and we have such fun. I've uh, I've seen the photos. I gotta make it there one day. Back to the '90s, I watched your first TV appearance, the River Cafe, mm-hmm. a documentary on BBC, yeah. which I thought I have to call out Ruth Rogers and, and Rose Gray. They looked so cool. Mm, they, I mean, they still are, and I mean, Rose is no longer with us, sadly. Yeah, but Ruthie, yeah. Ruthie, who is an American, actually, yes, she um, is. is an extraordinary woman. I mean, like superpower. She's like Yoda. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's and and together they were an incredible marriage. Um, um, uh, both both very different styles, but came together in the middle with simplicity. And Ruthie's husband is Richard Rogers, the famous architect that yep. did the Pompidou Center and, and, you know, and, and 
and yeah. the Millennium Dome. And, and like, so she, her sense of style is outrageous. But they change the menu every single day, twice a day. Total change of menu. And their compromise for ingredients was zero. They didn't care what the price was. They just wanted the best. And then they'd try and apply the margin. And the customer had to, like, put up with it or go. That's so, the way it should like, be yeah. everywhere. Well, the true price of food is an interesting one. Like, yeah. you know, if you want the best scallops in the world, they're going to charge you two quid for that. If mm-hmm. that's diet, you know, someone's risked their life to go and die. piece, yeah, dive, absolutely. And it comes to you alive. And it's been out the water for 10 hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, so apply that across, you know, the, the best sea bass, the best huge turbot, amazing free-range pork that's had more time to sort of, you know, pick up more flesh and fed on a, an amazing diet. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the River Cafe is expensive, but it's still brilliant. Uh, back to those those guys. I mean, she had this look that was so amazing in the documentary. They wrapped the documentary with this party scene. It's you at a table, your future wife is there. What was going on in that scene? I'm going to link to the the YouTube. Well, it was kind of a... It was so it, cool. It you was, were having a good time. Yeah, man. I mean, it was Christmas at the River Cafe. And yeah, it was basically yeah. what their their expression of Christmas through the kind of, I guess, the Tuscan Italian River Cafe lens was. Yeah. And then most of us were like friends, family and staff that were kind of around the table. And and I, I was like a baby. I was like 23. <laughs> and it was amazing. And, and that's where it all started from. And of course, when I was in the background of that documentary, I wasn't even supposed to be working that day. So <laughs> I, someone called in sick and I covered them. So mm-hmm. that's the only reason that I was there making the rotolo, making the mm-hmm. pasta dishes in service. And they and, and now I'm a television maker. I know exactly what they were doing. They kind of put the recipes together and then you needed that kind of reportage, that mm-hmm. montage of how mm-hmm. the restaurant works and what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's that bit that I managed to get scattered across. And so, that's where uh, you were discovered, essentially. Yeah, t- it, was, it was the only reason I was discovered. Amazing. Uh, it was the and, and 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 because I wasn't even supposed to be there anyway, it makes it even more frightening. Um, <laughs> but and, and it is because I think like the I guess the point of that is, yeah. um, first of all, two points. That first of all, the Naked Chef didn't look as cool as it did because we just were clever. Like the first <laughs> show was rubbish, and we threw it in the bin. No one's ever seen it. It was really boring, really rubbish. Rubbish. So the first lesson for me to express is, you know, be careful to hate your failures because they normally create your best moments. Uh, secondly, um, I was never supposed to be there at the River Cafe at that moment. And when I had my 20 years party and I had hundreds of people there, partners, you know, you're looking at, you know, all the things, you know, we've sold 50, 50 million books and there's a whole pe- bunch of people in the room that have helped me get there. You know, we've we've changed British law and policy around kids and child, you know, child welfare and free school lunches mm-hmm. and, and standards for school food. Like The kind of things we've done have been mad. But that was never me at 23, by the way. <laughs> that, that was just something I became as mm-hmm. I was exposed yeah, and it. grow. But the point is, is I was never supposed to be there that shift. <laughs> so what was really scary was all the people in front of me kind of looking at me and I'm like, you're only ever here because I turned up that one day. It's faith, <laughs> it's man. Like, ah! You gotta have faith in, in the cosmos. Frightening. Let's talk about selling books. You're the second most best-selling author in the UK to J.K. Rowling. You've sold, um, you said, fifty million. I gotta yeah. say, like, what drives you to make more TV shows and cookbooks? I mean, you've you've done so much, but you're making one now. You're putting one out. Yeah, um, there's just a lot to say and a lot to cover, and the audience is changing and growing up, and and um, the target ain't the same. It's not, you know, like even subtle things like, you know, like kitchens look different now. The technology is different now. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago when The Naked Chef broke, um, men and women were largely going to work and men were largely not cooking. So yeah. The Naked Chef's success 
was transitioning like cooking is for girls to cooking could get you girls mm -hmm. and that and that was a really it was a slightly <laughs> important transition because it was quite an old the boys then yeah. uh, of my age and a couple of decades older it was chauvinism mm -hmm. do you know yeah. what i mean we both done a 12 hour day what's for dinner darling it's like mm -hmm. really so if you look at all the tear sheets it's all the women's mags that pushed me hard mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't just because I was young and blonde and sort of ready. It, it was like he cooks did you get any pushback from your buddies for doing TV uh, men, uh, oh yeah the chefs hated me <laughs> especially the ones that I admired and loved and adored um, and men didn't really like me for about two years because they thought that I was just a pain in the ass and competition but it wasn't and, I, and you know what blokes are like you know, yeah, they, it's yeah. either food in their tummy or, or a bunk up so <laughs> the, the minute they realised that cooking for girls could get them more jiggy jiggy like they then I became their ally. So, and, and you know, boys aren't that quick. So it took them two years to, to go enemy, enemy, ally. Ally. You were um, an FHM, you were in the Lad Mags, and then it was Eventually, I became the food editor of G GQ for some time. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, that was kind of fun. Uh, James <laughs> Brown gave me my first job. And um, yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. But it was really interesting times. But I, I, I think I've just had to grow and pick things up. Yeah, and you journey. pick it up in these in these books. You pick up on threads and 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 what just what inspires you? Then I mean, this is a big question, but I think you can give me an answer. Like, are you inspired by travel? Are you inspired by your family? What inspires you the most to make these everything books? conversations, meeting people, problems, issues, uh, right things, wrong things, um, culture, travel, religion, food, mm -hmm. every, everything. I find I grew up in a pub, so yeah. people fascinate me. I, I, I yeah. generally can love and fall in love with all types of people. Um, so I find that a joyful thing of life. But I think ultimately, I mean, you could ask me a question and, and there are all, often maybe 20 layers to answer that. And I think ultimately, at its simplest form, um, I'm fighting in my lifetime to build a case for mm -hmm. us humans that have lots of choices and our lives are changing to buy some stuff, do some stuff to it yeah. and enjoy it. And yeah. that's called cooking, food and dinner. And, and and this latest book and series is called Together and post-pandemic, uh, or not, we're not really post it, but as we ooze out of the pandemic. Yeah, I agree. Pandemic, Oozing is a good word. <laughs> um, uh, the word together means something different. And I, I, by the way, I'm talking with authority because normally I would word the sentence as in, well, that's my view and not yours or your colleagues or anyone else. Like, But we've all been through this. We, yeah. all, we know together the concept and the word is different this year yep. than a year ago. It's well said, Jamie, and thank you for saying it. But I think democratizing food, as I said in The Jump, is a big part of what you've done with your work, and you have friends from all over the globe. So I appreciate that. Are you excited by the way British food media has changed in the past, I would say, three or four years? As an observer from the U.S., I think in the past it was maybe slightly st stunted or stilted. My word is not yours, but I think there's been an evolution. Are you other other writers? Shows, or, shows or... and books and and writing. You know, you know newsletters like uh, Vittles, I think is extremely yeah. good. Ruby Tando. Are there are there any writers or any books that you're they're really vibing with right now? Uh, this is going to sound really arrogant, but I, I try and stay out of it. I agree. Okay. I, I, I can't. I, I don't want to. Not arrogant. I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, I I love that it's layered and textured. That's the most yeah. important thing. Um, in one sense, in my game, like uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's look, I'm geeky, I'm niche, mm -hmm. I get into like granular stuff. We can mm -hmm. talk about all mm -hmm. kinds of like geeky stuff for mm -hmm. hours. Mm -hmm. But my job is really, I'm in 120 countries around the world. You know, I'm kind of the 
the big name in cooking. Mm-hmm. And I, and if I go niche, everyone's like, what's he on? Mm-hmm. So my job, and, and like it's part of the success, but also, you know, you, I, you always have to wrestle with that emotionally, is I have to be the best that mi- mainstream can be. Uh, so when I look around me and there's wonderful writers and niche people and geeks and, yeah. you know, what, what we struggle with still, and possibly in this country as well, is getting more people up to sort of the mainstream level. Do you know what I mean? And, I, I and, and actually in 20 years in Britain, there's hardly been anyone. You know, and, and also to, for, for the TV people to get behind them, they have to have something. You know, is it two fat ladies? Is it hairy bikers? Mm-hmm. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, this, this, I do. Like, you have to have something right or wrong with you to sort of like to, to be <laughs> unique enough to get. And yeah. so, we've got a lot to learn, but definitely like photography, filming. I, I think like British food TV is probably some of the best in the world mm-hmm. um, from a kind of visual point of view yeah. and editing. But um, but hey, look, the the joy is we. Technology is changing everything. I know it. Does. Your national broadcast- even what you can do on a phone, dude. I know, and your national broadcaster is is definitely exceptional, and and you have a national broadcaster, which I, I think is something that we don't have here. I just say I point to Vittles. Don't you have PBS though? We do have PBS. I think it's a little more piecemeal, and it, it definitely the funding isn't as strong as the BBC. Right. We do, and the funding we do have. It just the, the quality of B, of of PBS varies so greatly. Right. Um. Thank you for reminding me of PBS. We do have that. Yeah, they're there somewhere. They're there somewhere, but I, I, this isn't a show to cancel PBS uh, or, or an interview. I, I, I like PBS. But back to Vittles, I just think that's a newsletter that I really love, and I think it's changing the game in British uh, food media. I respect your your answer because you're honest, and a lot of folks would dodge the question, but you said you want to be mainstream because you're in 120 countries. Yeah, look, I've that. got a job to do, and the yeah. public expects stuff from me. So, for instance, like yeah. my expression of that is, uh, look, I'm a pretty good cook. I'm not. I'm not exceptional, and I, and I actually don't want to be. You know, I'm. Yeah. I'm. I, I can knock. I, I can be like really good at stuff that's really accessible, and that's the world I'm happy to do. I don't want a Michelin star, but dude, if I wanted one, <laughs> I'd get one in a year. It's like it uh, ain't hard, right? No, it, it's honestly not hard. Uh, like you just got to play the game, buy some nice crockery, be a little <laughs> bit pretentious. I mean, you know, right? I mean, I, I know I could do it in a second, um, but um, I think it's good to be who you are. Respect, um, yeah. but. But also, like when we went into lockdown, we were the first non-broadcast, uh, non-news broadcast show to put a bespoke show out on day one. So on Friday, I just said, "Boys and girls, we're not going home. Who's in?" Mm-hmm. And we made a week's worth of content that went live prime time Monday, and then we continued it on phones. It was the first prime time show to be filmed on phones in Britain. Yeah, and we did a month of lockdown content that weren't recipes; they were principles because everyone was running out of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like. I definitely think that's my job. I, uh, by the way, that wasn't commissioned. And by the way, I didn't yeah. even get paid for it. Yeah, respect So you know, <laughs> yeah. it was public service. So I think, um, and I didn't do it because I consciously felt it was just, that's, this is my job. Yo, respect. I'm going to go back and, and link to those those episodes because that the, that will be part of our, our record of what happened during lockdown. Respect that. I want to go over some recipes because I, I, I think Together has some cool concepts. I mean, one I, I really landed on was white chocolate mousse and passion fruit. Okay, yeah. ta- take me to the development of this idea because I think it's, it feels retro and it feels future. It feels we're going in some directions there. I just love the texture and I love and my kids love mousse and, yes. and passion fruit has this ability I mean, like white chocolate's not really chocolate. It's sort of fake chocolate. It's True. kind of you know. It's, There's no it's, cocoa in it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like the butterfat. So it's yeah. so with that in mind, it's it's got the it's got the silkiness and the texture and, and the allure. But <laughs> um, but uh, the passion fruit just cuts. Yeah. And 
being from Britain, um, you didn't grow up with flavours like that. And mm-hmm. I remember the first time I had a glass of passion fruit juice. I was about nine years old. I was in Cyprus. And the dude at the bar, you know, just kids, you could kind of go and ask mm-hmm. for stuff. And I remember how everything went slow motion when it went in my mouth. I'm like, damn, <laughs> ooh, what's that? Um, so I still feel to this day, and, and also when you buy passion fruit, People tend to buy like the really shiny round ones mm. and um, the ones that are wrinkly, they kind of think are to be thrown mm-hmm. away. Opposite. Let them get wrinkly. Mm-hmm. If you buy it, leave it. Let it wrinkle. And then when you cut that open and get that in, it's the most perfume thing. So look, it was as simple as that. I kept the ingredients really, really low. You don't mm-hmm. need much. Just a, a hot knife or spoon goes through it. Yeah. And, and, and um, it makes people happy. I love the way that you're just simplicity has always been your game, and it's hard to do. People don't say that enough. Three ingredients is tough. I look, I think um, in the book, I've never written a book by this, like this, by the way. Okay, so, cool. So because the the essentially, look, you can go to the book for one recipe, get in and get out. But what I've done in the book that I've never done is each chapter is a meal. And I've tried to give you a myriad of meals for different, you know, there's some fancy stuff, there's some really humble stuff. There's brunches, lunches, dinners. There's kind of stuff for the seasons. So there's an Arosto Misto in there, which I just did on Good Morning America, which is actually perfect because they're saying, look, there's not enough turkeys. And I'm like, (laughs) dude, it's just pork belly, easy. Mm -hmm. Like top side of beef, easy. Chicken, easy. But as an Arosto Misto, so we've got like epic meals. You called it epic mixed roast, that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or (laughs) an Arosto Misto, as the Italians would call it. But, but, But every... If you look at the writing, yeah. it's all written to make sure that you are not stressed. Yeah and, yeah. and and we've all been to dinner parties. We've all been to dinner parties where the person cooking it is hot, sweating, stressed, and not enjoying the beautifulness of their friends around them. So this book is basically to guarantee flavor and get you ahead of the game. Literally. And it's amazing how the written word can actually do that. Um, and then hopefully you feel if you yeah. flick through the book that it's just got an. I mean, we've got curry night, taco party. There's, <laughs> there's a there's a last minute feast in there for like literally like oh you come around my house what tonight yeah. Yeah. and stuff that you can get from a regular Cornish store. Do you have people come by just for dinner parties? Uh, well, we have dinner parties. I've, I've kind of don't need it in a way because I've got so many kids. Yeah, um, you have five, so, right? Yeah, amazing. And, um, but no, I, I think at work we're always kind of doing things left, right, and center. And I think for for me as a family man, generally the weekends are the time where we do yeah. like really lovely lunches, um, Sunday lunch, of course, as well. Um, I absolutely love it. You must stress once in a while during uh, during a meal. Um, I, I stress. When my my missus like she's she's brilliant at a million and one things, yeah. but genetically she's not really uh, a host. Like <laughs> she's not really. A it host. just isn't yeah. built in. To so her she'll, body. she'll so she'll kind of fill me up like <laughs> like oh you don't have to do anything like I think actually I annoy her that I really love to serve. <laughs> so like because I'll pick flowers. Yeah, and and, I watch the TV show. You're pretty good at it. Yeah, I I love, I love, (laughs) I love the idea that actually not only is a page a blank canvas for writing, um, but but a table is a blank canvas for like, do you do tablecloth or not? It's no right or wrong. Paper, Mm -hmm. rugged. uh, Do you lay? Do you put the crockery in the middle of the table in a glass, or do you lay the table? They Mm -hmm. all mean different things. And by the way, they're not right or wrong. (laughs) Um, So, but but I think what I tried to zone in on in this book was to care. Mm-hmm. To actually give a shit, you can mm-hmm. bleep that. I'm sorry, but no, like, good. but do you know what I mean? Like, I but mean. seriously, like, 
Every, yeah, I'm easy, cool, casual. I can order the million things on an app. Like food's never been, technology's never made food easier. Yeah. Like everything's kind of pre-prepared for you. Component cooking, yeah. <laughs> you know, Naked Chef, the average time spent on a dinner every night, 46 minutes. Now, 23 minutes and that's two years out of date. And in those two years, we didn't have three quarters or more of the apps mm -hmm. that you can get food in a second, in an hour. Mm -hmm. so, so it's interesting because technology, which God bless, uh, for better or for worse, has is pulling us the, made us worse entertainers. Yeah, and, and the I agree with without you. question, the human. Like, I've analyzed this. It's my job um, for better and for worse. Convenience is the biggest driver. Yeah. So if you think about it, the most uncommercial thing that I could do right now is the book that you see before you, mm -hmm. right? Because it's about caring. Mm -hmm. But I believe that as we settle out of COVID and settle out of what we've been through, I believe that technology is about convenience and many other things, but. The, the rebalance, which will happen over the next 10 years, um, uh, I, I think that we like to care. How and when might change, but I think it, it doesn't matter if it's New York or Kentucky or UK. Like the idea of having four or 10 friends coming around and nailing it. I love that. And I think going back to the analog world is going to be part of our, our return to normalcy. And, and really, you make points about craft and care when with cooking. Our readers definitely understand that. Our listeners of the podcast understand that. that you that It takes more time than you think to put together a meal and put on the table. But that time but, is well spent, and, right? And I wrote that for these listeners, by the yeah, way. Because, yeah. but, and, and, and what I've learned over the years is it's, it's not saying I know better than you because some of your readers will definitely be better cooks than me. Um, but I, I'm pretty good at a lot of things. And what I try and do is in, within the kind of beauty of, of... And that's the other thing as well. Like digital technically is better than a book. You know, like a screen is better um, than rubbish printing. I have nice printing, but you know, <laughs> yeah. rubbish. But you have all the options and videos and wikis and like, but actually, there's something quite visceral. People like to pick it up. And when you flick through the pages, I hope that you're just getting ideas for you to riff your own thing. Yeah, no, and I mean, the book, like doing a, a real book is what. We stand behind that world. I mean, that is what you want. You want a physical book. And speaking of books, I want to close this interview. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast, if you had uh, a book uh, to write that required um, unlimited budget, unlimited time, you went on an island, you created this book, what would the book be? I'm so fascinated by people and history. But I'm also let down and fascinated by presumptuousness and lack of understanding of the things we take for granted and mm -hmm. what on earth has happened to get things that we take for granted in front of us in a regular store. Mm -hmm. So I would love to do the story of spices and where vanilla comes from. Everyone knows vanilla. You know, the biggest mm -hmm. customer of vanilla is one of our most famous drinks in America, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what does it look like? Mm -hmm. Show me that plant it comes from. Why is it so expensive? Sticky and fragrant and extraordinary. Can you go sweet? Can you go savory? What can you do with it? What did it mean to the locals that picked mm -hmm. it? What does it mean to us? You know, cinnamon, nutmeg, cumin, fenugreek, curry leaves, ginger. Like, I'd love to do a story... Um, to actually go see where the islands, the peninsulas, the mm -hmm. mountains, like where this stuff comes from. And, and, and I think spice is beautiful because people always think spice is chilly hot. But spice can be very, certainly when yeah. you get into sort of the Egyptian, Arabic, sort of mm -hmm. per, Persian, mm -hmm. like this, this uh, Turkish, mm -hmm. gentle, subtle, painfully genius layering yeah. of flavors. Like, what? Yeah. And it's just a chicken, but what? <laughs> it takes it to a different um, level. So, it takes the place. Yeah, and yeah. I think, and I, th I still think for the Brits and the Americans, like that 
I, I do it at home, right? I, cause, just because I'm a bit biased. But, like, I always have my spice rack. Whether, you know, mm-hmm. today or even when I had nothing, you know, like a tiny studio flat, mm-hmm. I always had a, a wall, mm-hmm. a library of spices and condiments. And it's, it's, that, to me, just says hope, <laughs> potential, optimism. Yep. Um, the world is a small place. And, like, you pick up your chicken breast. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or your yeah, you put sumac squash. on it. You've got sumac and, and the chicken. And you're in a shuk in Tel Aviv exactly, or you're in Lebanon. Exactly. And you yeah. kind of go, am I feeling Greek? Am I feeling Spanish? Yeah. And to know that just a little chorizo or parsley and lemon juice could yeah. just take you there. And, and I, think, I do think that, like, our great-grandparents never had that. Um, and, and so we're super lucky. And, look... Look, of course, there's a million recipes that you can do in 15 minutes in one pan for busy, hardworking people. But also, you can put five things together in a slow cooker and go to work for 14 hours, come back, and the house smells of heaven. It, my grandfather's born in Liverpool. I don't think he had fenugreek. I'm just going to make that. No, he would have been making scouse, I'm pretty sure, You know, which is a pretty rugged stew. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it, interestingly, like, you know, Britain, you know, because Britain historically, I mean, half of my, the half of my career in America was going on David Letterman. And mm-hmm. let's say I had a like eight-minute interview. Without question, four minutes would be like him taking the piss out of English yeah. cooking. Yeah. Um, and so we did have that bad rep. But, <laughs> but that was really the outcome of the Industrial Revolution, which was kind of our Silicon Valley moment, right? Um, it's true. So It was. You were, there was the boom time for The creation the of brands, yeah. the, crea- you know, the creation of um, like national brands in tins, in bottles, in jars. And you'd have things like Worcestershire sauce that's still prolific today that, of course, was all about the old empire and tamarind, anchovies and cinnamon and all these kind of cool things. So, you know, your granddad would have had Worcestershire sauce. Certainly. Probably with bangers and mash. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> and he would have, he would have like, if you'd have told him what was in it, if you said there was anchovy in it, he probably would have whacked you, but he would have liked Or tamarind sauce. in yeah. it, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, what's that? <laughs> Jamie Oliver, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>